Transform the way you hunt with the all-new Bay Cellular Trail Camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This is your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley. Got a fun episode for you today. I was able to catch up with Paul Anir. If you read a lot of deer hunting articles online, chances are you have read something by Paul. Paul is a prolific outdoor writer. He works for Cuddyback, uh, just an all-around good dude. He's an avid outdoorsman, a very serious deer hunter. And one of the things that he really, really loves is post-season scouting and also shed hunting. And that's what we're talking about in this episode. We talk about how Paul tackles a property, whether it's a new property or a property that he's used to. We talk about the areas that he tries to focus in on. We talk about how important certain types of sign are to him at this time of year when it can really be tough to kind of weigh, hey, is this fall sign? Is this September sign, October sign, November sign? Like when is this sign made and when is it important? We also talk about the difference between how deer move during the winter and how they move during the fall hunting season. A lot of folks like to throw out information that can be gathered at this time of year and say, well, the deer won't be doing that in the fall anyway, so it doesn't matter. Well, Paul's approach is a little bit different, and so I think it's very, very good, very, very helpful. It's a fantastic conversation. Had a good time chatting with him. I'm also hoping to talk with him again soon about shed hunting If you've been watching social media over the last couple of days, you've seen uh, the Emperor Dan Johnson, the Nine Finger Chronicles wonder, uh, online giving you some shed season tactics. You go where deer live, and you put your head down, and you walk, and that's how you find shed antlers. That's true. That's absolutely true. And it's a fair point when it comes to talking about uh, the hunting industry and how difficult we make certain things to be. But at the end of the day, There are places where deer live where they tend to drop their sheds a little more often than other places. And that's just the truth of it. If that wasn't true, then sheds would be evenly distributed across the landscape rather than uh, concentrated in certain areas. And I think if you've found any number of sheds before or if you've done any shed hunting, you know sheds get concentrated in certain areas. So I hope to have Paul on again to talk about shed hunting. And maybe we'll get into a little bit more than you go where deer live, put your head down, and you walk even though hey there's value in that absolutely that is that is absolutely true and we tend to overcomplicate things in uh, in the outdoor space but before we jump into today's episode i do want to say thanks to our partners number one tacticam they're the title sponsor of this show uh they've got a great deal going on right now if you're a turkey hunter right now you are getting ready you're getting geared up you're buying your calls you're pulling your stuff out you're deciding what do i need for this year What do I not need for this year? What do I need to buy? One of the things I would recommend that you buy as a turkey hunter is a Tacticam point of view camera. Filming deer hunts is cool, and I like filming my deer hunts, but I will not go into the turkey woods without filming my turkey hunt. There are times that I leave the big camera at home when it comes to deer hunting. I never do that turkey hunting. 
Now, my Tacticams, they go with me all the time wherever I'm at, but I would much rather get a turkey hunt on film than a deer hunt on film. I don't know why. I don't know what it is. I, just something about the encounters with these animals is often so cool. Tacticam has a deal going on right now, their early turkey prep deal, where you can receive one free mount or accessory with the purchase of a Tacticam 6.0 camera. So basically, you go to their website, you add a 6.0 camera to your cart, you select an item from either mounts or their accessories, uh, everything except for the film through the scope accessories, and add that to the cart as well. And then that item's price will be taken off automatically at checkout. So you're going to get one free mount or one free accessory. So if you don't have a 6.0 already, grab a mount to attach that 6.0 to your weapon or grab a bendy clamp mount. I'm a huge fan of the bendy clamps and you're going to get that for free. You can find all that at Tacticam.com. Next up, Huntworth. Guys, I've bragged on Huntworth over and over again, but I am looking forward to getting out this spring and putting that tarnin pattern to the test. I'm going to be hunting turkeys in Wisconsin. I just got some things in the works to possibly turkey hunt in Ohio. I'm definitely turkey hunting in Georgia. I'm turkey hunting in Alabama, possibly hitting up Tennessee or South Carolina, depending on how successful I am here, uh, here at home. So I'm going to have the opportunity to turkey hunt in lots of different places. And I'm going to be wearing that tarnin pattern wherever I go. And I've got confidence in it. It just blends in super, super well. You should go check out their gear. If you're looking for some new turkey hunting camo, go to their website, Huntworth Gear. Com. I highly recommend the Durham Lightweight Pants. Uh, I wore those a lot in early season for deer hunting, and I'm going to be breaking them out again for uh, turkey hunting as well. Early, early season for turkey hunting there in Wisconsin, I'm probably going to go back to the Elkins Midweight stuff. Um, you know, going to have some chilly mornings and that kind of thing, but as season wears on, definitely going to be back in those Durham Lightweight Pants or as I'm hunting turkeys further south, definitely going to be wearing that early season stuff because the rest is is a little too warm for uh, for hunting turkeys in the deep south. So guys, go support the partners that support this show. I'm so grateful that they allow me to do what I do week in and week out. Please go show your appreciation to them by buying some of their stuff. And now last but not least, if you have not already, please, please, please go leave us a review. That will help me way more than you know. Also subscribe, like, follow, whatever it is you can do uh, to this podcast, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Also follow along on Instagram at the Wisconsin Sportsman, or you can find me at How to Hunt Deer. Now let's get right into the conversation with Paul Anir talking postseason scouting. All right, joining me on the podcast this week is Mr. Paul Anir from Wisconsin. Paul, what's going on, buddy? Hey, Josh, doing pretty good. How about you? Good, man. Good. Did I say your last name right, Anir? Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah. All right. Like uh, it's like a one in ten chance that people say it right, and you uh, you nailed it. Perfect. Well, the other ninety nine people that I've had on this show so far, I've said all of their last names incorrectly. So you got it. Uh, you know, yeah. one out of a hundred. I guess eventually I've got to get it right. So. Uh, man, Paul, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, I've been following you on Instagram for, I don't know, a year, a little over a year at this point. Uh, we finally got a chance to connect at ATA in person. That was a really cool experience, just walking up and being like, hey, there's a real live version of the digital person that I usually interact <laughs> with and like watches stuff. So uh, anyway, really glad you could make the time to come on and talk today. Uh, our topic is going to be spring or postseason or winter or basically scouting after deer season however however you want to to frame that i mean i feel like there's kind of a fuzzy line from when it goes to post from postseason scouting to 
uh, preseason scouting. Maybe turkey season is kind of the the delineating line there. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, it kind of kind of breaks that down. But Paul, why don't we kick things off by just saying, you know, give us the rundown of who you are, what you do, where you live, where do you hunt, all that good stuff. Yeah, so I kind of got into the the hunting space. Um, you could say probably like 2014 is kind of when I started doing a lot of freelance writing. Um, started off pretty small, sending a lot of places, you know, articles for free in exchange for, you know, like a sweatshirt or some gear or whatever. And then uh, eventually kind of caught a break with Midwest Whitetail. Uh, Bill Winky over there, he started accepting some of my articles for Midwest Whitetail. And I sent him quite a few in the fall of uh, 2015 and 16. Um, you know, I, I'm still unpaid. He just needed content. And ex- in exchange, I got, you know, kind of a good platform. Um, so I've been, you know, caught a break there. And then from then on out, uh, writing for various websites and magazines, um, all sorts of topics covering, uh, you know, within the whitetail world. So I've uh, kind of done that for a long time now here. And then uh, I work full time for Cuddyback Digital here in Green Bay. I live just south of Green Bay, but I work there full time. So I've been there a little over two years now and I uh, really like that. Um, I was born and raised in southwest Wisconsin. Um, in Richland County, so the hills of the Driftless, and oh, I know yeah. you've, uh, like we talked at ATA, you've uh, roamed around that area. It's beautiful. Oh man, love um, it. Still, still hunt back there in my parents' land, so it's. Uh, I feel super blessed to, to be able to recreate and do a lot of hunting back there. And um, yeah, no, it's uh, that's that's kind of my, I guess the short version of the backstory of uh, kind of where I'm at. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your, um, your writing right now. Like, what are the outlets that folks would would find you on. So I actually, uh, it took me a little bit to put some of the pieces together, but I'd actually read quite a bit of your stuff from the Midwest Whitetail, Whitetail days and that kind of thing going back a long ways. But I mean, sure. how often do you read an article and say, okay, who was that guy? You know, like, let me, let me make sure I yeah. saw exactly who the author was. You know, you're just, you're just reading a post, right? Exactly. Um, so where, where would I find your stuff today? Where, like, where are you most active? Yeah. So jury outdoors, um, their deer cast app. I do a lot of consistent writing for them. Um, great platform, really like those guys, uh, just top-notch people. Uh, Real Tree, North American Whitetail, Deer and Deer Hunting, um, you know, ND, uh, the Quality Deer Management Association, written there a few times. So pretty much anywhere, bowhunting.com. So really anywhere you look, I guess I've, I've contributed to a certain extent, um, some more than others. But, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, trying to just crank out content and try to, try to produce stuff that I would want to read topics that you know have been regurgitated and thought through so many different times by so many different writers but yet trying to put a different spin on it and um you know bring something else to light that maybe hasn't been thought about before yeah yeah so i'm curious about the space right like this is probably one of the the number one questions that i get for for what i do is hey how do i get into starting a podcast i want to do a podcast how do i do it and then I talk to guys that have a YouTube channel and they say, everybody wants to know how to start a YouTube channel. And then I talk to guys who write, like um, I had a conversation with Tony Peterson the other day or the, a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, he said that was one of his most common questions is people are like, hey, how do you get, in, get into writing? I'm sure you get that a lot. But I'm, I want to know, you know, in your space, in, in the writing realm, what are some of the things that help the uh, really prolific um, – and successful writers stand apart from those who, you know, can't quite get their foot in the door. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, I talk, uh, talk to quite a few people and they wonder, you know, how'd you do this? And honestly, I just started documenting and telling stories about what I was doing out in the woods. And then I sent a ton of emails <laughs> to anyone <laughs> and everyone I could possibly find and connect with in the hunting industry. I mean, you name it, I've probably sent them an email. Yeah. Um, whether it went through successfully or not, or I heard back, that's, you know, people are busy. I, I, I never held that against anybody. But yeah, I mean, you just have to constantly be throwing darts at the dartboard. And, you know, and if something sticks, you got to really follow up on it and be, uh, um, be aware of, you know, what you're putting out there and how often you can be contributing and just, uh, you know, be Johnny on the spot with that stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's certainly a space that a lot of people want to get into and you just have to find ways to make it different and, uh, come up with content that, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people write articles about frost seeding. Well, I, you know, I have a different way of planting clover now other than frost seeding. And so I've been kind of writing about that a little bit more. So, it's just taking something that's been written about and talked about so much and putting a little bit different spin on it. Um, really good photography also goes along with, uh, with writing, obviously, as you would know. Um, so, you know, upfront costs of, you know, getting some camera gear to go along with your writing. Um, that's, you know, a really good option, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it was a grind to start. I mean, writing for free. And I knew that that was kind of the way to go is to like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to put myself out there and um, contribute these articles and really not expect much in return, but yet provide a lot of value for the people that I was giving the articles to. Yep. And I knew that eventually would kind of work out in my favor. You know, I, I, I think a lot of people want to get into the hunting industry and they kind of expect something in return right away. And I know, you know, this being in the industry, a lot of these companies are so small. Yep. You know, we think of them as these yep. big well, maybe not, but you know, I thought that the hunting industry was so much bigger until I got into it. Yeah. And then you, you show up at the ATA show or you talk to some of these guys and get to know them. It's like, man, these companies are small. They are. I mean, 20 to 25 employees. I mean, yeah, there's, there's big, big companies in the industry, Matthews and, uh, you know, some of those big guys. But other than that, man, the industry is really small. And I think people do themselves a really big favor by not expecting too much in return when they're trying to, you know, work as a pro staff member or do an exchange of some product and stuff like that, you kind of have to start out slow. And these, a lot of these companies see through kind of who the people are that can really provide them value. Um, so I think that's something that I did really well to start out with. And then it kind of snowballed into bigger and better things uh, through the writing space. Yeah, man, that's such a good point that, you know, I, I do talk to a lot of people that want to get into the hunting industry and a lot of them don't quite grasp that, you've got to be providing value consistently for a long time before, before you get any money in the mail. Like, I mean, you've got to be showing up week in week out, doing the work, treating it like it's a full-time job. Absolutely. Before, before checks start showing up and, and really before companies, you know, if you're doing something like I'm doing where advertising is a thing um, before companies start taking you seriously. You know, before they before they really see, hey, this this is a guy worth investing in because how many people are trying to do it and they pop in and out? You know, they're they're here one week and they're gone the next. And yep. um, yeah, For sure. so, interesting, man. Really good stuff. Really, really good stuff. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the property you hunt. You mentioned that um, your parents have a property in southwest Wisconsin that you still have the opportunity to go back and hunt. You do live in Green Bay, though. 
So I'm guessing you've got lots of chances to hunt between the two um, and that you're not making the drive down every weekend or, you know, every week. So tell me a little bit about the different properties that you hunt and the different terrain types and, uh, you know, public versus private, all that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I do mainly, you know, a lot of my hunting back in in southwest Wisconsin in the Driftless region where I'm born and raised, where my parents still live. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's some there's some big deer down there, so it's really hard not to uh, – want to try to drive back every weekend during the fall and hunt that area, especially since that's where I run the bulk of my trail cameras. Um, and of course, you know, being in the industry and working for Cuddyback, I, you know, we use a lot of cameras. You and, got a couple, uh, you got yeah, a couple. Yeah, just a few. So <laughs> a handful, a couple. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's some big deer back there for sure. Um, so I'm really lucky to be able to hunt back there. The terrain in Southwest Wisconsin, if people aren't familiar, it's, you know, it's a driftless region, they call it bluff country. So a lot of ridge points, uh, steep valleys, steep hillsides. Um, you know, I always tell people hunting in hill country can be so easy and it can be so hard sometimes. I and mean, when yeah. it happens and comes together, it feels too easy, you know, because you have the terrain working in your favor. You typically can cheat the wind a little bit to where you're using thermals, um, to your advantage. So in the you know, nighttime, they're going to be falling back down the hill so if you're expect, expecting deer in front of you and you can get, you know, your stand up against a ridge um, point and you can have your thermals falling down, I mean, it's it almost is too easy. But then there's certain times where deer bed, you know, out on ridge points or on, you know, leeward sides of ridges um, where they can see forever. You know, I mean, how do you access that? You know, it's really tough. So so we can go both ways. It's, uh, you know, it's an awesome area. It's a beautiful country and super blessed to be able to hunt there. So just hunting private land, um, Southwest Wisconsin, but then up here near green Bay where I live, I hunt, uh, a little bit of both. I hunt some private, um, just a couple pieces that add up to a total of only like 25 acres. So, um, a couple pieces that are, um, one is 16 and then one is 10 and actually another smaller piece. So it's more, it's closer to 40, but three different pieces that are private. Um, so super small, but they connect to a lot of uh, private land that's i guess more spread out and it's kind of a bigger chunk so i purposely targeted some smaller private areas that butt up to a larger contingency of large you know larger property landowners um because i know that a lot of those guys looking for permission are going to be knocking on doors of you know the big guys and you know people owning a lot of land so i kind of purposely reached out to landowners that own those smaller parcels, hoping that I could be kind of on the, the back end or the front end of the start of, a, you know, a good chunk of property. So I really scored pretty well that way and, and had some good, good success up here. Um, haven't ever shot a buck up here yet, but I've taken a lot of does, um, passed some decent bucks, but try to save my uh, buck tags for back home and in uh, Southwest Wisconsin. So couple different private pieces up here. And then I do hunt some public land. Um, it's kind of been on my, uh, my list to shoot a public land buck up here. Really not going to be too picky on the size. I, I just really want to, you know, hunt some public land up here and kind of give myself a little bit of a challenge in, in terms of that. So there's some good public land up in this area for sure. I mean, you have to work hard to escape the, the masses and the people, but it can be done. Um, but yeah, it's, it's different country up here near Green Bay for sure. I mean, you have some rolling hills, but a lot of it is just farmland with uh, small woodlots. And like I said, when you do come across uh, 
a swath of land that's, you know, three, 400 acres of timber mixed with some river bottom, potentially some farm, farm fields. You got to take advantage and try to try to get on those spots because there's definitely going to be big deer. So, yeah, I hunt, uh, quite a, you know, some different areas for sure. A um, couple of these spots that I have close to home, five, ten minutes away. So I feel pretty lucky to, to be able to hop out and, uh, and get in the stand pretty quick from my house. So it's, it's nice. Whereas Southwest Wisconsin, it's about, about a three and a half hour drive. So it, it takes, a takes a weekend if I'm going to go there. Yeah. Yeah, man. Something that you said, I kind of want to circle back to because, um, <clears throat> if guys want to increase the number of places that they've got permission on, now's the time to do it. Like, September 1st, not a good time to go ask for permission to hunt on somebody's property. Um, I am curious, though, with, with some of the smaller places that you hunt, how do you handle uh, a conversation that I've run into a lot? You know, you go up, you knock on the landowner's door, because I've kind of done something similar to you, um, finding smaller parcels touching a, a larger parcel or, you know, two or three larger parcels. And they say, I've only got five acres or I've only got six acres. I've only got eight acres. And, uh, you know, I've had that conversation a lot with landowners like, yeah, you'd be surprised what I could do with five acres. You know, uh, you can make a lot happen there. And so how do you, how do you handle that conversation? Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the times that I knocked on a landowner's door, um, he took me around in his gator right away. Super nice old guy drives truck for a living, still works. Uh, and now we've developed a really good friendship, but that initial conversation was really funny. Um, took me on his gator. Like I said, we drove down to his uh, field and, you know, overlooked his whole property and we actually jumped a really nice eight pointer. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and on that, that conversation on the way down, um, he was kind of saying that same thing, you know, like it's only like 10 acres, you know I mean? Yeah, we have deer, but you know, I don't really know what kind of deer we have running around. And sure enough, we jump you know, probably 120, 125 inch eight pointer. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, so, you know, I was, uh, I was, you know, itching to get on that property at that, at that point, but yeah, it ended up working out and that's, that's one of the properties I hunt, but yeah, I think you gotta be, you gotta kind of shoot, <laughs> shoot from the hip a little bit in terms of, uh, trying to find those properties and really not trying to go for the, for the big ones right away. I mean, you can do it, but I mean, you know, if they're already leasing it out or they got family that hunts there, they're probably going to, you know, they're probably going to say no, or they're going to ask for a, a chunk of money that you might want, might not want to fork over. Um, you know, and I certainly, you know, I, I do pay a little bit to hunt these properties, but it's more of just a kind of a thank you. So, um, yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky when you're looking for permission and, you know, the price of land and, and leasing and how popular that's gotten. Yeah. And another thing, another challenge that I find with, uh, people looking to get on land these days is, um, you know, a lot of people are buying recreational land that don't necessarily hunt. Um, yep. a lot of people are really catching on and people have always known this, but land is a really good investment. And so, you know, guys that work at big companies and have high up positions, they own a lot of land. And I've kind mm-hmm. of, I've kind of been, my eyes have been open to that fact a lot lately that, you know, these people that never hunt, they just want to own land in really good areas where they know the price is just going to keep going up and up. Um, they're going to own land and eventually sell it and make obviously really good profit. And that's, you know, it's just good business, but it's hard to get on some of those properties yeah. um, unless you know that person. And then of course they're, you know, they're looking to make more money too. And why wouldn't you? Um, so they're probably going to make you lease it and, and whatnot. So it's, it's tough. I mean, asking for permission 
you know, in 2023 isn't like asking for permission in 2015, 2010, or 2005. I mean, it's a whole different game now. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I have done, um, is, is because it, and COVID really pushed me to this, uh, was lead with letters. You know, that that's the first thing they ever get from me before I show up knocking on their front door. Um, you get a letter in the mail. You know, we it, it, it provides an opportunity to open up that conversation before I'm the you know, bearded guy standing on your front porch. Um, Absolutely. Which can yeah, be a little bit funny sketchy. funny you mention that because uh, I talked to somebody, what was it, maybe a couple of years ago, he did the same thing. He sent a bunch of letters, and coincidentally, it was back in the area kind of where I hunt. It's kind of, it's pretty well known for bigger deer and getting even more well known, um, you know, the western side of the state in general, but southwest corner is kind of taken off lately and he did the same thing he sent letters to i think over 50 landowners and eventually did get permission so i mean yeah like some people don't have access to really good land and you know they they just might not be willing to to press the issue and to work that extra extra little bit to get access and so i mean it can be done for sure i mean absolutely people people still appreciate that uh um face-to-face uh, communication and then, you know, the willingness to, to work hard and maybe help out the landowner doing something. So, I mean, yeah, I, I sometimes feel sorry for people that they don't have good land to hunt. And other times I'm like, ah, you know, I mean, it can still be done. You just have to work really, really hard for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so with, with the, with the letter writing that I've done, I've run about 10% success rate and, and that's in Dane County. So you're wow. talking lot, big population, lots of people, uh, yep. Lots of hunters in, in Dane County. A lot of folks hunt. And oh, so, sure. you know, 10% success rate is, is pretty good. And another reason not to overlook the, um, those smaller parcels, right? So I, I knocked on a, on a door one time. There was a uh, 20 acres on one side of the road, but it was all open crop field. There was no timber on, on the actual property. So I get over there. I knock on the door. Hey, can I hunt here? Sure, absolutely. And then he starts pointing across the road, telling me about the turkeys that are over there. And I was like, oh, is that yours too? And he's like, oh, yeah, that 160 over there is mine too. You can hunt that. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. That <laughs> changes. Yeah, exactly. Jackpot. So now I've got, you know, this 20 awesome. on one side of the road to hunt, uh, but then the 160 on the other side where I've got turkey and late season deer permission, which is oh, awesome. You know, yeah, you can't beat that. So That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. So man, we're not here to talk uh to talk permission and access, but my goodness, that that probably deserves oh, an episode yeah. in itself. Yeah, no, I got a lot of lot of strategies and, and talking points on that. So yeah, we'll have to save that for another day. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. So let's let's jump in now to talking about, you know, what we're here to to talk about. Uh and that is uh you know, deer hunting and doing a little postseason scouting. Before we get into that, though, I've got to I've got to ask you one more thing. I, I said we were going to jump into it, but I lied. Uh, it. Your your twenty twenty two whitetail season, how'd that go? Yeah, it went pretty well. It was a good year. So um, bow season, I was playing cat and mouse with a, a really nice buck that uh, is a good nine pointer. I'd say right around the 135, 140 range. The neighbor ended up killing him. We have a really good relationship with the neighbors, so I was, I was happy for him. But, of course, I wish I would have been the successful hunter. Um, <laughs> I shot a, a decent eight-pointer. No, it was a nine. I'm looking at him right now. Um, October 15th or 16th, I was. Whatever that Saturday was in the middle of October. Um, it was actually a really interesting hunt. So we have the way my parents' property sets up, there's a big low-lying cornfield. And the corn was still standing, and so 
It's a long walk from their house to the top of the ridge, but I typically walk when the corn is up because I can sneak around the deer. Mm. So I have to sneak around a huge cornfield, go up along the side of a fence row, uh, bordering a, their CRP field as well. It's corn and then CRP and then the woods, and that all goes uphill. Um, and so I snuck around, been getting a lot of pictures of that nine pointer that I was wanting to kill, got into the stand, um, had a good morning, saw some, saw a couple deer and then saw the nine pointer that I wanted to kill along with the deer that I ended up shooting. So the eight pointer came through munching on acorns and eventually came under my stand and I, I shot him. Um, nothing special, but just a good three and a half year old deer. And he went down, not five minutes later, the target buck nine pointer shows up. <laughs> and actually I had another, I had another tag. Did so you really? As soon as I saw him, um, I knock another arrow and get ready because I, I had a CWD positive deer from the 2021 wow, okay. season. Yeah. So I'm like, well, okay, here, here we go. Like he might follow that same trail that the, uh, the buck that I just killed followed, but he ended up bedding down about 70 yards away. Oh. I'm in my tree stand thinking, what do I do? Do I call Adam? Do I let him just wait it out? I decided to wait it out. So I'm sitting there chilling up against the tree, shaking like a leaf, um, knocked onto my D loop and everything. And he eventually, the wind kind of switched as he would, he was bedded down and he got up and trotted off. So that was, that was kind of the end of hunting him. And then the neighbor got him during gun season. So he's, uh, he's down and out. Um, and then during gun season, opening morning of Wisconsin's nine day, I shot a, a pretty good, uh, he was an 11 pointer, um, had a little sticker coming off his G2, um, pretty cool buck. I shot him right away in the morning, um, which I'm, I'm very thankful for. It was very cold yeah. the opening morning of Wisconsin yeah. gun season. So yeah, it was, it was quite no, it was an a, opener this year. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it was a really good season. I can't complain. It was, uh, it was, it was a good time. So good, man. Well, you know what? Um, you're obviously motivated though, to get out and do some postseason scouting. I have found though that there's nothing quite like a bad season to get somebody motivated to get out in the, in the woods <laughs> and actually do some scouting after the season's over. You know, no you, doubt. It, it's almost like, man, if you have too much success, it's like, well, I kind of did okay last year. You know, you kind of sit back oh, on what you are. Yeah, you know. can ride those waves, yeah, and it kind of yeah. it can make you a little bit complacent if you don't watch it. Yeah, yeah no, I know yeah. what you're saying for sure. But let's let's talk to that crowd that's ready to get out there, or, or maybe we start, you know, in the middle of this, we're making the case, hey, you really do need to get out there. Uh, mm-hmm. When it comes to postseason scouting or winter scouting or spring scouting, whatever you want to call it, I'm going to lump it all kind of in the same bucket for right now. I know there are different stages, especially in Wisconsin, where you've got you know true postseason scouting or winter scouting when there's still you know snow on the ground, and then you've got a whole other level of scouting that you can do when there's no snow on the ground and things are very very different in in the timber. But let's talk about postseason scouting. When it comes to scouting after deer season, where do you start? Yeah, so I, you know, you brought up a good point. There's that scouting immediately after the season's done while there's still some snow on the ground. And so that brings up a a really good topic. I like to do it in a couple different waves. So I do like to do some scouting while there's still snow on the ground because I think it's really critical I mean, the snow and the trails through snow can tell you so much. Yep. And there's a different school of thought that, you know, some people are thinking, well, they don't really move in the winter how they do in the fall. And that's true. I think the patterns of when they move are very different, but I don't think the trails and actually how they move throughout the land changes that much. Mm. I think it's the critical, the critical part of that, I think, is the time. 
So I really do like to get out and do some scouting in the snow to see kind of how they're using, you know, how they're using that bend around by the creek that pinches down to that little bit of uh, land that goes over to this trail that leads to the bedding area, all that stuff, you know, whatever it is. I think it's really important to, uh, to get out there and read some terrain while the snow is still present. Um, so I do like to definitely get out and do that, but I'm a little hesitant to, I guess, do that multiple times just because I am a hardcore shed hunter. And so I love to get out there once the majority of the snow is off and, and do some good shed hunting. So, you know, I, I, t- I tell people, you know, if you're wanting to really find a lot of sheds and learn the most about your property immediately after the season, I mean, yeah, get out there, do a little scouting in the snow and find those trails and find, you know, that leftover deer sign and, find some, you know, droppings and, you know, where the bedding area is. I mean, obviously you can find clumps of doe beds and find some buck beds in the snow really easy too. So I think that's another good strategy is to, to dive into some areas that, you know, you suspect are good bedding areas, but, you know, have you really gone in there and confirmed it? So it is good to do that. But yeah, I mean, I don't like to traipse in there too much with all the snow on the ground because, you know, typically that means you're still in January or February and, not a lot of the deer have dropped yet. So dropped antlers, I should say. Um, so yeah, I mean, I like to do it in a couple different waves and then I, I, you know, the month of March, it's funny. I'm actually working on an article right now, um, about why March should be one of your favorite whitetail months. And I just think it's, there's so much stuff going on in March, right? I mean, you got shed hunting, bra seeding, clover, um, you know, prescribed burns for guys that are kind of in the mid South, timber stand improvement, you know, you can do that anywhere, you know, just get a chainsaw or um, hack and squirt technique, whatever you're doing out there. I mean, March is like, I think it's like one of my favorite whitetail months. I mean, besides hunting October and November, I would honestly say March is my favorite month to get things done for whitetails. I go around, I loosen tree straps on my tree stands. Um, But yeah, I mean, scouting in March, I think is, is critical. So, I mean, as soon as the snow melts, I'm out there looking for old sign, looking for old scrapes. I mean, some of those scrapes look like they were just made. I mean, the, the way the ground freezes, uh, freezes the dirt. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's like freezing vegetables, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it holds really well. And you yep. find that, you know, when the snow melts, all of a sudden you look at those scrapes and they're right there for you to see. So there's so much deer sign to read in March. Um, and so I combine a lot of that with my shed hunting. I would say, you know, as soon as the snow melts, like March 10th through the 25th is when I do the bulk of my spring scouting and shed hunting. I like to wait to uh, do a bunch of my scouting once I know that a lot of deer have dropped antlers because I kind of combine the two and, and try to make uh, make it into one big weekend. And I can only do so many trips, you know, back 200 miles to my uh, <laughs> my folks place where I grew up. So that's that's where I do the bulk of it, of course. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I just, I absolutely love the month of March for whitetails. That's awesome, man. So I, I got to know, what do you do? Like I've got, I've got this major issue and that issue is called turkey hunting. And I've noticed more and more here lately, by the time I'm at the end of February, when I go out in the woods, it doesn't matter if I intended to, you know, scout for deer. If I see the first turkey track or heaven forbid, I hear a, a something gobble. Like I'm totally distracted from there on out. So do you have any prescription for me, man? Do you have anything that can help? Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> I, gosh, it's funny you say that. Cause like, I, I love turkey hunting and I'm getting into it more and more, but, um, 
I was in track and field at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison in college, and I was super busy, spring sport, of course, being in track. And so I never really got to hunt that much, and I kind of lost the passion for it. And now I'm kind of getting it back now that I'm into my 30s and I got kids and I want to get them introduced to it. But, yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky to stay on task when you're out there scouting. So, I mean, I I love turkeys, but, man, I'm a deer nut. So when I'm out there in March and February, I mean, my, my focus is still 100% whitetail. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's hard for me to, you know, and we can kind of get into some shed hunting topics if you want. But, you know, I, I love those days that are – you know, to find a bunch of sheds, I found that, you know, sunny days are kind of crap. Yep. Hard to see antlers. You see a lot of, see a lot of things that supposedly, you know, they look like sheds, but it's a stick or it's a corn stalk or something. So I love those days actually where it's, you know, you, you get a little bit of rain or you got some, uh, you got some heavy overcast where, you know, those are the days where maybe turkeys might not be, you know, there out you and go. about, or That's you don't you, yeah. you don't hear that faint gobble. So, <laughs> I actually, I, I really like those days for shed hunting. The, the sheds seem to seem to pop off the leaves that you know get darkened by rain. Um, so I, I really, I'm not afraid to throw on some waterproof clothes and um, pack some extra pair of socks or something like that, and and go out shed hunting for three to four hours at a time, even in the rain or just a light light mist or something like that. Um, gosh, that's, that's just where I, I really enjoy getting out there in the woods. It's kind of those, those crappy days where you can, you can find a shed really easy. If it's, if it's been baking in some sun for a while and it's late March and you got a rainy day, I mean, you're gonna, you're probably not going to walk past too many big, you know, sizable sheds in those kind of conditions. It's, they, they really stand out. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the Wisconsin Sportsman podcast is brought to you by Tacticam makers of the best point-of-view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that is a total game-changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions, you know just how frustrating it can be to try to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of mounts and adapters. This fall, I'm going to be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com, and share your hunt with Tacticam. Man, you you had you had a legit answer for my turkey problem. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, get the, out there in the crap weather. Yeah, go yeah. out there in the crap weather when it's no, <laughs> nothing is going to remind you of turkey hunting. There won't be any goblin no. going on. It's going to be Rubbing miserable. Out. You know, nothing. It's not warm. You know, you're not going to think about turkey hunting at all. So no, you might get a cold later in the week, but yeah, bring an right. extra stocking cap so it doesn't get soaked. Yeah, <laughs> man, good stuff. So I, I want to get around to. Um, your approach and how it might differ. Um, you know, you've got a property that you've been hunting on for a long time, and I imagine that you still scout that really, really hard, but you're also adding new properties. You've got other properties with less experience on, and then you've got other properties that are public, right? And things are changing all the time, or maybe you're adding new pieces. How does your approach differ when you're, you know, scouting a spot that you're really, really familiar with versus a spot that's maybe kind of newer to you? Yeah. So, I mean, I, 
like every hunter, I mean, I struggle with the access side of things. I mean, that's, gosh, the more I hunt, the more I realize that that is just so critical. I mean, you can't, you can't get in there on a smart old buck and kill him if you're bumping him or if he's, he knows you're hunting him. Right. So, um, I'm always, I'm always trying to scout and figure out how I can, you know, how deer are scouting me, I guess is kind of a way to put it. Um, so I'm always walking, thinking about how I, how can I access this stand better? How can I get in to this, you know, inside corner edge or this bedding area with this certain wind? I'm always running through those scenarios in my head. So one thing I've actually thought about doing this spring, and I, I really need to do it, is uh, get a friend or, you know, my dad or a buddy, whatever, get up to a couple of my tree stands and have uh, have somebody you know, kind of standing in a bedding area and have somebody walk up how they normally would to that tree stand and get to, you know, whenever you, you know, kind of shout at each other when, Hey, I can hear you or, Hey, I can, uh, I can see you now, you know, and kind of, you know, it's, it's not, it wouldn't be a foolproof way of kind of pretending you're a deer, but just to do some creative things like that. Right. Um, I think anything you can do to, um, focus on access and make sure you're getting in and out without spooking, you know, deer is, is critical. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't vary, I guess, a whole lot from property to property. I have to think differently though, when I'm hunting in extreme hill country of Southwest Wisconsin, as compared to a woodlot up here near Green Bay, um, that's flat and doesn't have acorns, you know, I mean, so it, it I got to do some different things, but I mean, yeah, I'm looking at access and I'm looking at, you know, where are the deer wanting to be at the time when I'm going to be on stand. I mean, that's, that's really what it's all about. Yeah, man. One, one thing that I have to throw out here because it's, you just brought up access and this has played into my success over the last two years of, um, of bow hunting, um, hunting where, um, because I hunt primarily public, right? Like I, I, I hunt a lot of private ground for turkeys, um, mostly cause I don't want to get shot because I sound like a turkey. Yeah. Um, you. But, you know, bow hunting, I, I love the challenge of public land. I love getting out there in the mix and trying to learn it and put all the pieces together. When I'm on public land, I've had a lot of success using the non-deer hunting pressure to my advantage. So areas where, you know, you can tell, okay, the pheasant hunters drive here, they park their truck here, they let their dogs out here, and then they walk this route to get to this part of the field, and then they start hunting. I sure. use that as access because those deer have have put that almost in a separate compartment in their minds. Or Makes sense. you know, this is a this is a normal trail where people come and walk their dogs every single day, or they come and hike every single day. The deer log that in kind of a different category, almost. They and, do, and yeah. that has been really helpful for me. And I have killed the last two bucks that I've killed in Wisconsin. Uh, the only two bucks I've killed in Wisconsin. Um, only started hunting there three years ago, but it those experiences taught me like man, they you can hug you can hug highly pressured areas really really closely, and just kind of take a little bit of a different route off of that, and boom, mm-hmm. it's like you're in a totally secluded area that they don't expect people to be. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's a good point because one of the properties it's public. Uh, that I hunt up here, of course, it's got road access on two different sides. And then one of the access points is actually on a bike path. And so Mm. you could, I could technically drive the bike path 
park it, you know, dump it in the ditch and, and go up and hunt the property from there. And I, I need to do that, but I got distracted chasing a different deer last year, but, uh, no, I, I need to do that. And that's a good point is you can find, you know, just something like that. I mean, yeah, it would take me riding a bicycle or walking three quarters of a mile on a bike path, but is it going to be worth it? Well, I, I don't know. You got to find out, right? So yeah. you have to you have to think differently and do things a little bit different than other people on public land. I mean, if you're parking at the at the parking spot where everybody's at, and you know, there's just constantly bow hunters coming in and out, and I mean, deer they catch on to that stuff, and they know when you know when hunters are are getting out of the stand just past dark. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's critical to be to be thinking differently and. Uh, you know, taking a different approach to things for sure. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious now let's, let's shift our, our gears just a little bit. Um, when you're doing postseason scouting, winter scouting, spring scouting, there's a lot of sign. Like the woods are just absolutely full. When I, when I first moved up to Wisconsin, actually, uh, we moved up at the end of January. I started scouting immediately, like three days after I got there. And I had never seen so much sign in my entire life. I didn't know how to make sense of it. And then once the snow started to melt, I was like, I don't know what to do. I walked into this little woodlot. There were hundreds of beds. And I was like, <laughs> what, what is happening? Why are there? And there were like literally the entire ground was nothing but deer droppings. Wow. Every, everywhere you look and there's deer hair everywhere. And I'm like, why? I didn't understand that it had just been frozen all winter. You know, it's just, sure. it's just the accumulation of sign from a, from oh, a whole yeah. year. So one of the things that I've started doing, you know, hopefully you tag out in November, scouting right away, you know, right away, as soon as yep. you can in November, trying not to mess up everyone else's hunt if you're hunting public land. Um, you know, then scouting as soon as the season's over or scouting, you know, in the snow and then scouting again in the spring, kind of get a feel for how the sign progresses and changes. Yep. What are you doing to make sure that you're weighing things appropriately? Because you may find a trail in March that looks like yep. a cattle path. Yep. But in reality, it's not being used very often. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's you know, going back to the point of, uh, you know, I guess what I find is typically in, like, this can be, this can kind of throw people off. So, I mean, take this with a grain of salt. But like I said, in hill country, it seems like deer are going to use the terrain somewhat similar all the time because they can only work around so much terrain or a big rock outcropping or a big drop off. They can't go, they can't go through, you know, up and around it or whatever. I mean, they die if they went a certain way, right? I mean, they'd fall off a cliff. Like that's how <laughs> steep it is in Southwest Wisconsin sometimes. Yeah. yeah so I yeah. have to be careful when I'm shed on Nick to like watch my step and make sure I'm not like, you know, tumbling down 300 foot cliffs. But, um, they, I think they just use it at different times of the year a little bit um, more heavily than others, right? I mean, so if there's a, if you got a big ridge top crop field or something that was crusted over with layers and layers of snow for, for two months and all of a sudden it breaks free in late February or early March, I mean, yeah, like you said, I mean, there might be a cattle path out to that cornfield. I mean, so you do kind of have to keep an eye on the food sources that are around you and kind of make sense of like, okay, is this being used more heavily this time of year? Like how much was this really used in September, October, November, right? Um, you know, there's food everywhere in September and, you know, into parts of October. So 
I think it's it's all about um, you know this kind of goes along with shed hunting too. You have to eliminate ground that really isn't going to produce for you, right? So instead of looking at everything as like a possibility, I think you need to uh, sometimes when you're out there spring scouting, kind of look at certain places and be like, all right, is this is this really a spot where I can get in and out realistically and kill a deer? Um, and if you can, well then great. That's a spot that you know you should mark up on you know onyx or deer cast maps or whatever you're using and put those waypoints all over there um and track your path in and out that's another thing too when i'm spring scouting i'll uh i'll turn on my path tracker on uh, onyx or deer cast maps whatever i'm using and pack pat um, track my path to and from the tree stands and kind of look at that on a map and be like all right how does that line up with my terrain features that i see deer using and do i see that they can um you know do they, have a, do they have a visual on me if i'm approaching from this way with this sort of wind and so i think you you do a really good job during march of eliminating ground that you know you think might be really good deer hunting but you look at it from a map or you use a path tracking feature on your app or whatever you're doing and you find that hey you know that's it's not really going to work for access um, so I think eliminating certain spots is really important, um, almost more so than finding spots. I think I think you find your spots by eliminating spots that you know, hey, I, I, the chances of killing a deer right here are very, very slim. Yeah. Um, but that's tough because you also have to spend some time hunting in those areas to really figure out, okay, like, you know, after hunts one and two, I kind of have a beat on these deer, and I kind of know where they're going to be. There's, you know, maybe an alfalfa field that's still green or – the soybeans haven't yellowed up yet. So, I mean, they're still using this trail. Um, so there is a little bit of in-person hunting that has to kind of supplement that spring scouting. But I, I, I think that's where it's really important. If you get access to a property or even, you know, if you'd have, you've had access to a property for a long time. Um, but those first two years of hunting a place, the next couple springs scouting is going to be really important because that's where you can really dive in there with, uh, you know, March looks like November, right? There's no leaves yep. on the trees. There's no understory. Uh, the deer sign is still very fresh, like we said. Um, so that's where you can make some make some really good gains on those properties is, is scouting those years after you've done maybe two seasons of hunting. And you can be like, all right, I need to dive in here during my spring scouting and kind of see where deer are hanging out. Um, you know, and like we talked about, it's tricky. You kind of have to take everything with a little bit of grain of salt because, they might not be uh, in a certain area in November, but they might be there in March and, you know, vice versa. So I think it's really it's really important to know the food sources and what the deer are going to be eating because then you can kind of gauge whether the deer are truly going to be there um, come hunting season and you can actually pull a bow back on them. Yeah, man, a, a couple of things that you talked about there I, I want to circle back to. So you mentioned deer using terrain similarly or pretty much the same, especially when it comes to southwest Wisconsin. So where I primarily hunt, uh, Dane and some surrounding counties, um, you know, we've got some hills in, in some areas, especially western Dane County. You can get pretty yep. pretty hilly. Um, yep. But in some areas, too, we're, we're relying mostly on vegetation edges, right? They're, they're not typically the kinds of terrain features you get in southwest Wisconsin. At the same time, though, I have observed the terrain features that you do get 
or like, you know, creeks, ditches, that kind of thing, those really, really dictate deer travel and deer movement. Number two, um, I've noticed, you know, even if, let's say, an edge used to be a nice, thick, brushy edge, well, a frost comes through in October and all the leaves fall and Mm. it's not a thick, brushy edge anymore, the deer don't totally abandon it. It's like they move to the next edge. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're still within eyesight, maybe, if you go in there and hunt again. So it's not like, ah, all is lost. They use this in October and, you know, come November 1st, they're nowhere to be found. It's like, no, they're, they're 75 yards that way, you know, or yeah. 65 yards over there now. Um, yeah, they, they, just, should, they just make a, a small little shift. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. And that, so I just wanted to circle back to that point. Even if folks aren't hunting in southwest Wisconsin, even if they don't have these big terrain features, deer aren't just abandoning good areas. <clears throat> no, they're not. Now, if For they're, sure, and that's, if they're yeah. there only because of a food source, yeah, they may abandon that area. Mm-hmm. But if, if your deer are there only because of a food source, you might not be hunting the best spot anyway. Um, you know, they're, they're probably more consistent producers than, you know, if you're, if you're hunting a spot that's only good because of this food source in this small window of time, there are probably some other spots on your ground that you could find where, hey, man, this is going to be a lot more consistent. There are deer here, you know, season long rather than a week, you know, the second week of October or, For or sure. whatever it is. Yep. Yep. I always like to sum it up. It's like, you know, every animal's goal in life, every animal out there on the entire planet, their goal is to survive. Yep. Right. So whatever helps them survive, whether it's food, whether it's cover or food, that's where they're going to be. Um, and you brought up a really good point about, you know, in more flat areas, I have a, you know, a property up here that I have access to that, that that's exactly what it is. It's really flat. doesn't have a whole lot of terrain feature. There's uh, some mature hardwoods right off the edge of a cornfield. And then, uh, you know, that's probably 70, 80 yards wide. And then it transitions into cedar swamp and then it drops off into more cedar swamp. So there's a, a little plateau and it's just those edges like that where deer, First of all, they love to bed. Yep. They love to, and you're going to see a ton of deer sign. They love to um, cruise those areas during the rut, those edges like that. I mean, habitat edge, right? I mean, yep. how often do you, do you see that out there? It's it's all about the edge habitat, and it really is. And so that's where I've done a lot of my spring scouting on this property. I found a couple sheds there. Um, deer are just attracted to edge. I don't know if it's the potential for escape cover or if it's uh you know because there's edge habitat there's different woody browse species whatever it is deer love it and uh for shed hunting and and spring scout i mean those are two spots that you can't uh you can't miss and i think people should really focus in on and look for deer sign in those spots and if there's something that's uh you know even you know a terrain feature we're talking about you know southwest wisconsin in my situation but Terrain features really don't have to be very much. I mean, there's a lot of flat properties up here that I've been on with some people, um, friends and whatnot, and just little rises within cedar swamps um, or even in hardwoods up here where you think it's as flat as a pancake, but yet you get up on just a small little three-foot plateau that goes and leads up into a cornfield. Man, I mean, that's where deer are going to be. They're going to be laying sign down there, and in those areas, they're just attracted to those uh, different slight terrain features and, and edges like that. It, it doesn't have to be drastic. You don't have to have three, 400 foot bluffs like I do in Southwest Wisconsin. I mean, deer are, if you see it and it sticks out to you, 
I mean, it's probably going to be an area that deer are attracted to as well. Yep. When, um, before moving to Wisconsin, I lived in, in Southern Louisiana and there, if there was a two foot rise, I mean, we called that a ridge. I yeah. mean, that's, I mean, that literally <laughs> was the ridge that the deer are using to get through the swamp. And it's because it sticks up out of the water by two feet. For sure. And, or, or it's, it's the, the shallowest water, <laughs> you know, they, they've got to go through the water. It's just the yep. shallowest water. So it's just, you know, it's all relative to, to the terrain that you're hunting and deer, but deer are going to relate to terrain uh, very much the same way. I mean, the buck I killed this year, there was this very slight little knob in a spot where a ditch kind of flattened out just a little bit. And I had to, I, I didn't find the spot until I turned on X, the uh, elevation exaggeration. Yeah. I turned it all the way up. And then I was like, oh, look at that. And I went in and I killed the buck. And yeah. so it was like, man, that, that just made all the difference. And I saw more deer that day than I had seen any other day that I'd been hunting. It's like this one little bitty feature. Yeah. Couldn't even see it on a topo, but made it made all the, all difference. the difference. Yep. Yep. That's Absolutely. crazy. Yeah. That's, that's how I, well, it was more extreme. Um, when I, I killed my buck in Southwest Wisconsin this year during gun season opening morning, when it was really cold. He, uh, saw a couple of does come around the corner, this rock outcropping. And if, you know, for people listening, if you hunt, you know, in the Mississippi river Valley or anywhere in Southwest Wisconsin, Southeast Minnesota, that's all the same terrain. Rock outcroppings that, um, you know, drop, there's a steep ridge point, and then you got a rock outcropping. If you can hunt below those rock outcroppings, there's going to be trails, and there's going to be deer that fall into your lap. And that's what happened with my buck this year. He came around a corner, and, you know, I was there with a 308 Remington, and he basically fell right into my lap. And it was, you know, that's where it feels too easy. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, yeah, you got to use those features to your advantage, right? Yep. and so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be anything crazy that, you know, you were saying two foot ridges. I mean, any undulation and, and terrain that leads to any sort of food source or water source or anything like that, or has good cover. I mean, that's where deer are going to be. Yep. You, you said something earlier too. Um, and it's something that I'm really, really bad at, and it makes me, uh, inefficient when it comes to scouting. Um, and that's, that's eliminating ground. And it's because I've always got that optimism of like, this could be a good spot, right? Like maybe it, maybe it's a good spot. And you, you talked about March is a great time to, to just eliminate uh, a a lot of ground. And you mentioned access being kind of a primary thing of like, Hey, you can't get in here unseen without being smelled and without being heard, you know, on your way in. Are there other factors that cause you to just eliminate large swaths of of a property maybe it's through map scouting or maybe it's boots on the ground that just make you say you know what this this spot's not worth it i'll kill the deer somewhere else yeah um i try to i try not to do this but i do a lot of that with uh i feel like i do a lot of that with trail cameras too yeah i feel like they they help so much and i mean obviously i mean you got eyes on the woods 24 7 right so i mean it's hard to beat the the handiness of a trail camera. So, I mean, I would tell people, yeah, I mean, um, use those to your advantage beside, you know, in addition to your spring scouting, but yeah. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I can't really think of anything that I, I look at like, Hey, this is just going to totally not going to work. You know, um, I think until you've run trail cameras there, if you've really boots on the ground, scouted it and you've hunted it, you know, I, I wouldn't eliminate anything. I mean, it's, it's funny. One of the spots this year, 
that I'm, I'm going to focus on early season as a spot between my neighbors and my parents' property. It's just a little fence gap. That's mm. all it is for um, the farmer to drive his combine through. And it's made a really nice little uh, little runway between the two cornfields. And I ha- it was probably my busiest trail camera all year. No kidding. Um, Lots of daytime? Not necessarily tons and tons of buck daylight movement. Okay. But during the rut, that, that for sure cranked up. And I, I mean, it's... 150 yards from my parents' house, and I would just never think to sit there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and if, if you're getting that daylight I, movement. There's no sign. Uh, there's no sign there, and, you know, it's just I had to put a camera there to kind of find out. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's tricky. I mean, it, it, sometimes you just don't know. Yeah. And if you find those little spots, even if you're saying, like, wow, there's a ton of traffic. It's not necessarily daytime traffic, but it's a lot of traffic. Their, their movement is influenced more than just that spot though. So let's think yep. about how that ripples out into what could be daytime movement. Like how does, how does this spot being a high traffic area change the spot over here, 300 yards away, 350 yards away, you know, where they're going to be, you know, possibly still lingering around in, in daylight. I want to yep. get to one more topic. Um, you know, everybody knows what to look for uh, in, in when they're winter or spring scouting. If you don't, here you go. Rubs, scrapes, trails, deer tracks, anything cool that makes you go, wow, deer were here. Um, yeah. That's that's the stuff you want to note on, exactly. on your Onyx. And it, it's super important to mark all that stuff down on your hunt app. Um, make sure you're keeping really, really good notes. Piece it all together. Come back home. One of the things I like to do is just mark it all on my phone. Come back home, put it up on the computer and say, okay, Here's how everything kind of fits together and try to put those pieces of the puzzle together. Mm -hmm. I'm curious though, when it comes to the transition from spring scouting, winter scouting into now it's time to throw trail cameras up. How do you begin to um, choose the locations? I mean, even a guy with a lot of cameras, you're still limited, right? So how did, how does that inform your trail camera strategy? Um, and, and maybe what are some of the spots that you're like, these spots get cameras, but these spots don't? Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, there's some areas where I'll put cameras where I have no intention of ever hunting. Um, I just, I want to confirm or deny whether bucks are hanging out in this spot. And if I'm getting them on that camera, then maybe 200 yards up the ridge where I can kill him, I'll put another camera and expect to hunt that spot. Um but yeah, I mean, it, it is tricky. So, I mean, you gotta, you gotta pick and choose your cameras. Do you want to find, do you want to see pictures of deer where you're, you're planning to hunt or do you want to load them up in areas where, Hey, I'm curious. I've never really put a camera here, but, um, I want to see if deer are coming by and then, you know, maybe you don't have a stand there or you don't have a mobile setup and you can't, you know, move in on a deer that's working that trail. But yeah, I mean, supplementing, um, trail cameras with your spring with spring scouting, something I obviously do a ton of. Um, it's funny. I was going to bring this up earlier when we were talking about terrain features. So there's a really nice, um, up on my neighbor's property. It's, it's a giant, all it is is a huge ridge. It goes like this and then it dog legs to the left. It look it literally looks like a par five dog leg. If you look <laughs> at it on a, uh, on a topo map. And so I did a ton of scouting up there. Um, he was an older gentleman and, uh, let me look for sheds, uh, super nice. And then it kind of led to, uh, 
um, some gun hunting permission. He wouldn't let me archery hunt for some reason, but um, I was able to gun hunt. Huh. And so I shot a, uh, a pretty nice nine-pointer in 2021 up at a spot where I'd found a ton of sheds, a ton of deer sign, really good trails, right where that um, ridge took a bend and made a dog left. To the dog left um, was all the deer sign right there. And so um, actually my very first hunt up there, I ended up killing that nine-pointer. So it was... It was one of those spots where I had shed hunted, you know, the daylights out of that area, scouted it a ton, um, found a lot of good deer sign, even kind of marked some trees where, hey, you know, if I ever hunt up here, it's just kind of where I'd sit. And sure enough, within like, it was literally 30 minutes of my first sit up there at 2.15 in the afternoon during gun season, I, I killed that nine pointer. So, um, and I, I didn't have any trail cameras up there. I just kind of went you know, like, Hey, there's a bunch of, bunch of saplings and, you know, thick stem count up on this ridge and all the sign and all the, you know, the sheds I found up here. Um, it wasn't a ton, it was, you know, a couple, three or four sheds, but it all just kind of added up to like, this is just where I need to be. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's just kind of an example of, you know, shed hunting, spring scouting, adding up to fall success without having to use trail cameras. Um, you know, but cameras certainly help. I mean, I run a ton of them and, I'm sure a lot of listeners do, and I know I know I, I know you run some cameras, but it's all um, kind of they all kind of have to work in unison to find those hot spots and to be able to to really nail down where deer are going to be when you can actually kill them, right? Um, you know, deer moving in and out of properties during certain times of year—that's another tricky one. Chasing deer that uh, may not even exist or may not even be there anymore. <laughs> um, yep. You know, it all comes. I I tell people all the time. I mean, I know that. Drury Outdoors, uh, the Drury guys have kind of said this for a long time that, you know, deer are killed in the off season. And I totally believe that. I mean, yeah, you pull the trigger, you send the arrow in September, October, November, but man, deer are, deer are killed in the off season for sure. And, uh, all the scouting is, uh, it's about to happen and it's, uh, it's a good time of year to get out there and get boots on the ground. Yeah. So as a, you know, primarily public land when it comes to deer hunter, you know, for me, this this time frame is giving me a lot of starting points. Now, I'm, I'm going to walk away with, I want to hang in that tree one day. And I'm picking the tree, and I'm, I'm doing all the things that a private land guy would do, except for hanging a stand, right? <clears throat> but I'm also viewing that as kind of a starting point, right? Like, I'm going to come back, I'm going to hang in that tree during this time period for this reason, and then I'm going to adjust from there. How often are you making adjustments you know, obviously you're going to hang some stands and you're going to make plans based on what you find this time of year. But how often are you like, man, I was off by 20 yards, off by 30 yards and need to make tweaks? Yeah, that happens for sure. It happened a couple of years ago. Um, a big ridge top that, uh, so it was a field bottom that went up to a couple big ridges. And then the neighbor's cornfield was just 80, 90 yards off of this big ridge. Um, and I was, uh, I did a ton of scouting up there and, and just set the tree where I set the tree stand. It was kind of going on the backside of a ridge and it faces a bedding area that's over on the neighbors. And I just never really thought, um, you know, about access when I hung that stand and it ended up that I just spooked a lot of deer up there. So I had to kind of mm. make some adjustments there, but yeah, I mean, it happens for sure. Um, I do find a lot of my tree stand spots during my spring scouting in March, um, and then into April to where I'm at, it's, you know, it's not greening up until mid to late April. So I can get away with a little bit of that, but by then 
mind has kind of shifted over to Turkey, like you said, but, um, yeah, um, it's, it's a great time to, to figure out your stand locations and, um, also maybe mark some trees that where, Hey, you know, this spot I've never really focused much on, but if I, if I have a deer showing kind of in this area or the certain given acreage, I can mark some trees where if I need to get mobile, I can do that. You know, I have maybe some permanent sense around the corner or up on the ridges, but uh, getting mobile and leaving those options open is always, you know, a super good idea too, or people with lightweight hang-ons or saddles or whatever they're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's all about sheds and marking trees and, and finding sign for sure. Yeah. All right. So you you have yourself to thank for this because this is totally your fault. Now I want to hear about your, your, your spring turkey hunting plans. You just mentioned turkey hunting. I've done a really great job of staying on topic when it comes to uh, scouting for deer, but then you mentioned it. So uh, as a way to wrap up, man, what are, what are your plans for the spring? Do you have your um, – What did you get selected for one of the earlier seasons? Yep. Yeah, I got season uh, – what do they call it? B now in Wisconsin, so season two, second season. Um, so I'll be doing that primarily up here in okay. Green Bay. There's a ton of turkeys up here. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, as people listening, they know if they pay attention to hunting media, a lot of talk about turkey habitat these days and um, improving that, which, you know, you improve habitat for deer, you improve it for turkeys and vice versa for the most part. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be hunting up here during second season. Hopefully we're not snowed under and I can get after them pretty hard. I can... Uh, Luckily, one of the places is really close to my house, so I can probably get out a little bit before work if uh, wife can get the kids dropped off and all that. But yeah, I don't, uh, I don't travel a whole lot for turkey hunting yet. I mean, I'll, I'll get back to my folks' place and uh, you know do some morel hunting and, and whatnot. So I, you know, I might work in a little turkey season and buy one over the counter. But um, yeah, I mean, up here there's just a really healthy turkey population, and um, a lot of people do some predator. Um, coyote calling in the winter up here and get get a lot of coyotes i haven't done that too much yet but um no i'm, I'm really looking forward to getting after the gobblers and uh seeing some warmer weather yeah i talked with uh Can't wait. I, I talked with taylor finger from the dnr yesterday who's the um the game bird ecologist and sure. uh, for for the state of wisconsin and you know whereas a lot of the rest of the country right now they're seeing you know, declines in turkey populations, very low pulp per hen ratios. They're trying to figure out what in the world do we do. Uh, in Wisconsin, our turkey population has dropped and stabilized in the southern part of the state. But yep. then in the northern part of the state, like up around where you are, it's still growing. Yeah. And so really is the golden age of turkey hunting in, in Wisconsin right now, especially where you are. Now, there may be a time in the next couple of years where that high population comes back down a little bit into something that's actually reasonable. Um, yeah. You know, but uh, for, for right sure. now, man, get out there and enjoy it. No, it's doing really good. Yeah. I mean, it, one of the properties I hunt, it's a 16 acre piece used to be an old crop field. It's mainly a big bottom. Mm. Um, and the, the lady who owns the land, she doesn't have it enrolled in CRP every so often. It kind of depends on the year. She'll have somebody cut it for hay, but the last couple of years she hasn't been. And boy, that's, I, I, I think that's been awesome nesting habitat for those turkeys. And, oh, yeah. you know, mentioned to me one year, she's like, oh, I should really have a farmer come down there and, and cut it for hay. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's beautiful. <laughs> like, it's perfect. There's milkweed everywhere for butterflies. There's species growing in there that's just like, I've never really 
seen up here before. Like, it's awesome. Like yeah. I told her and she's like, Oh really? And I'm like, yeah, it's like turkey populations are going nuts up here. Cause you know, in part, cause you have this giant field, I think. And it's, it's hiding poults and it's doing a really good job of, yeah. of raising turkeys. So no, I mean, it's uh, yeah, tell her if anything, population up if here. anything, maybe, uh, maybe burn it in a year or two and then, yeah. you know, start it, you know, set it back again. And then, Ooh, could be, yeah, I know. I'd, I'd have to convince her of that though. I don't know if she, yeah, <laughs> maybe man. the next part of her uh, education. Yeah, man, you start talking to landowners. Um, and I, and I work with some people down here in Georgia on their, on their, their properties specifically for whitetails. But you start talking about setting somebody's property on fire. <laughs> yeah, that, people get real people weird. Need to, yeah, they do. They get things get weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah no doubt. A, real quick, a funny story about uh, burning is switchgrass and uh, Indian grass and all that stuff is very, very flammable, right? Oh yeah. So, <laughs> it's funny when I was like nine or ten, I was helping my dad do a prescribed burn on their big CRP field. So. Like I mentioned before, it's a big crop bottom field leads up to a CRP field and leads up to the woods. And so that's all consecutive leading up to the woods. It all goes uphill. And so the, the CRP in between the corn and the woods, it's probably a 20 acre CRP field. And, you know, that's, that was my dad's thinking, you know, this was a long time ago now when I was nine or 10, I'm 33 now. So it was a while ago we were doing a CRP burn. And man, that fire, we had 25 foot flames. It was what? insane. It was crazy. What? Did you light we it must at the have bottom? The driest day with no humidity. <laughs> and that CRP grass, it was a little bit taller back then. It's kind of been overtaken by some weeds now. But, man, that grass was probably six, seven, eight feet tall. And it was just uh, humming. Oh, and that yeah. fire was hot. He called the fire department just to have them come out and like, hey, if this thing gets out of hand. So that's the last time we've burned our property. But we got to do it again because, yeah, we're getting a lot of a lot of species that we don't like and uh it's kind of getting overtaken by a lot of annual stuff that yeah it's, it's kind of getting nasty but um, yeah no turkey habitat turkey hunting is a hot topic right now and yeah i can't wait to get after them yeah for sure man well paul thank you so much for coming on great conversation might have to do it again to talk shed hunting specifically because um i'm terrible at finding sheds like <laughs> I, got, I mean, I got a couple of them, you know, laying around here, but, uh, I see that. Not, not a lot. And so, uh, I, I need all the help I can get. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, I tell people all the time, like, Hey, I mean, you know, if you're not finding sheds, I mean, you just you might not have the winter deer. Right. And that's where running cameras and, and doing that scouting is going to help you. If you, you know, if you find out if you actually have the deer hanging out in your property, um, you know, you might not be as bad of a shed hunter as you think you are. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I knock on doors for shed hunting permission specifically. So yeah. La I, uh, the last one I found it. was bright white bleached by the sun and the surrounding CRP had been burned. So it was literally a bright white beacon in the middle of just ash miss it. all around. There yeah. There was no way to miss it. Yeah. And actually <laughs> I was, I was probably five feet from it before I even saw it. So yeah, it's funny. It, it was, it's pretty bad, but anyway, yeah. Paul, man, where, where can folks go if they want to, if they want to find more from you? I mean, they, they probably want to read some of your writing, catch up with you on Instagram. So where's all that? Yeah, absolutely. So just on Instagram, I'm at P Anier, So P A N N E A R. So just my uh, first and last name there. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, my writing, I mean, catch up with me anywhere. Like I said, writing for a lot of different publications or, if, you know, if you Google my name or something, I'm sure some stuff had come up, but um, yeah, consistently contributing to a lot of places like DeerCast, uh, Realtree, doing quite a bit for them. So um, yeah, if there's something to be written about regarding 
big whitetails I'm, I'm trying to cover it. Awesome. Well, thanks, Paul. Appreciate your time tonight, and uh, good luck while you're scouting this year. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. While you're at it, if you could leave me a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. You can also follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at the Wisconsin Sportsman or at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics, guests, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show. And if you're looking for more great outdoor content, check out the sportsmansempire.com where you'll find my other podcast, the How to Hunt Deer podcast, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts. And until next time, make sure you make the time to get outside and enjoy the incredible natural resources that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.